everybody. This is Joanna Harcourt-Smith at futureprimitive.org, and I'm very happy today to welcome Martin Prechtel on the phone. Martin Prechtel is a master of eloquence and innovative language. Martin Prechtel is a leading thinker, writer, and teacher whose work, both written and oral, hopes to promote the subtlety, irony, and pre-modern vitality hidden in any living language. As a half-blood Native American with a Pueblo Indian upbringing, his life took him from New Mexico to the village of Santiago Atitlan, Guatemala. There, becoming a full village member of the Tsutujil, Tsutujil, full village member of the Tsutujil Mayan population, he eventually served as a principal in that body of village leaders responsible for instructing the young people in the meanings of their ancient stories through the rituals of adult rites of passage. Once again, residing in his native New Mexico, Martin teaches at his international school, Bolad's Kitchen. Through story, music, ritual, and writing, Martin helps people in many lands to retain their diversity while remembering that their own sense of place in the daily sacred through the search of the indigenous soul. For more information, visit floweringmountain.com. Martin Prechtel is the author of Stealing Benefacio's Roses, The Disobedience of the Daughter of the Sun, Ecstasy and Time, Long Life, Honey in the Heart, and Secrets of the Talking Jaguar. So the first thing I'll ask you, Martin, is to say the name of uh, the uh, Mayan population you lived with. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, great. I say Tutuhil, but you know, the funny thing about it is that Tutuhil is actually a word used by all the other tribes for them, you know, like everybody else in the world. They never call themselves what everybody else calls them. So Tutuhil means cornflower, it means the tassel of a corn plant. Mm. That's what they call the people now, yeah. Their name for themselves is Chikinahai, which means uh, a house of birds or temple of wild birds. Yeah. Uh-huh. Either way, that's how you say. You can't really write those things with any sort of orthography, so, you know, Tutuhil Maya is a southern Kichan people who, you know, there are actually quite a few there, but now I think maybe even 55,000, 50,000 of them, but compared to Kichai people who they're related to, they're, who are numbering almost 3 million now, they're really a small group. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. live in the South Lake, Atitlan. Atitlan, yes. Yeah. I've been there. Beautiful it's Atitlan. really beautiful. Martin, um, this is some of what I would like to talk about with you. Uh, beauty, beauty. And especially on this day, I mean, we said we would not talk about politics. So So here's what I, a phrase that I pulled out. Um, 
that we might not live in the myth of power, but in the reality of beauty. Could you speak about that? Yeah, I could. I tell you, I'm not sure how much tape you have. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, think wonderful. About it. Well, where does one begin with that? First of all, I myself, as, a, as you were saying there, I grew up in New Mexico. I didn't, I didn't grow up in the New Mexico that you see around us today. I grew up in a different one. Yes. And uh, so I did uh, not come up thinking so much of being an individual who was very powerful, that had a lot of capacity to manipulate phenomena. And like a lot of people, they get a little grumpy with me because I, you know, I was uh, a spiritual doctor in village in Dangwarimala, which everybody here calls a shaman or a shaman. And yes. um, they always thinking that this has to do with getting very powerful and being able to fly at night like some sort of jaguar or something like that. Mm -hmm. Instead of the fact that actually it's about um, healing and making things well, and that generally at the base of that, sickness that people have, especially when it's a cultural sickness that affects everybody, yes. that what happens is that people fall uh, have because of some sort of catastrophe or traumatic reaction in our great frailness as human beings. Mm -hmm. We pull into sort of an emergency reaction and leave the beauty and therefore insult what is holy in the earth and what is sacred in the, mm -hmm. that gives us life and, and pumps the sap and all the trees and, and the plants that feed us and animals and so forth. And so the, the making good again that beauty by making more beauty and as offering, if you want to call it beauty, in other words, making um, something in order to not fill the void Mm -hmm. somehow uh, sustain and feed. Because it comes down to, at least my feeling on it and where I come from and what I learned as I was growing up, is that um, basically uh, it's all about feeding. Everything's about feeding. I mean, Mayans don't have a word like worshiping God. They don't say, they're called give God their food, give the God their food. Mm. And when somebody comes to your house, you say... Uh, um, do you feed them first? You don't ask them questions. You know, you might do some small talk, but if they're serious business, never. You know, rather we're eating, rather we're eating. And then later we talk. It's at all. And, and then the same thing goes if you see something running around in the street and you've never seen it before, mm -hmm. or a plant shows up in the ground you've never seen growing before. Mm -hmm. First thing they do is they talk to the plant and say, means, I wonder what food this one eats. I wonder what uh, fruit uh, you bear, because the idea is that a person, a plant, an animal, and all realities form uh -huh. basically a fruit on a trunk of a great tree of life. And so the beauty of the flower of that trunk is what creates that fruit. And what creates the fruit is the fertilization of the flower by the ecstatic divine. Mm -hmm. So if the flower itself, uh, and we're talking, you know, most people think this is metaphor, but Mayans don't see it as metaphor, they see it as reality. Mm -hmm. And so this beauty of this flower is what attracts the ecstatic, which the divine is not an intellectual thinker. You know, the, the, what is divine is always um, ecstatic. And so it comes to the smell and the aroma and the nectar of the flower. And so people, you, you, a lot of times you say, so, wow, what would I have to give to the holy that the holy didn't make to itself? Mm -hmm. And what we have is our thumbs. Yes. And we have our beautiful, eloquent voices, if, uh, if you will. Yes. And those two things are put together in ritual form and will make the beauty that we have to give. 
So a lot of time what we make with our hands is all functional, but with uh, uh, people that are really intact indigenously, spiritually speaking, actually everything they do has to have beauty in it. I mean, and our old ancestors, European people too, I mean, uh, even more so, I mean, I'm talking a long time ago. Yes. Talking, you know, a thousand years ago, I'm of talking, course. you know, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 and back. Yeah. And uh, you, you see the incredible, incredible, I mean, you go up into Siberia, where a lot of Indo-European people used to live up in uh, the area of uh, Altai and so forth, and Tuetka and Tatrick and all these places, and yeah. you see everything is beautiful, and everything they give away is beautiful, all of this. Spoons, their horse stirrups, their boots. My God, it's unbelievably beautiful. But I think that's what I think it is, is that uh, it means even the way you move, even the way you proceed in your life, even the way and especially the way you pass away and die, has to have beauty in it in order to see the whole so that the, the present uh, existence of beautiful creation does not perish. So beauty in itself is food that the holy drinks. So to become powerful and they actually steal from the holy. And so you become a thief that owes, and so somebody got to cover it with their beauty. Mm-hmm. More or less kind of what uh, everybody's thinking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. I love that you call the way of the shaman the way the way of tracking belongs to him. So... I wonder what is it that um, you have been tracking lately, Martin? Oh, that's another thing. I don't think I have enough tape for it. Um, <laughs> well, I've been writing a lot of books. And the books I'm writing are very different. I think they're different. I hope they're different than the ones I've written before. But really, where I'm always going toward is not any different than where I've always been going toward. It's just that now I'm doing different ways doing it and going about it. So um, right now, what I'm really occupied with, uh-huh. preoccupied with, I should say, is uh, in capacity of the present um, megacultures and so-called civilizations to actually remember how to be a human being. Mm. And so their indigenous, uh, innate indigenous memory is not threatened, but it's kind of a refugee in their own soul, you see what I'm saying? So they can't even um, remember what they're supposed to remember. And what I spend in my time doing, which sounds like an impossible insanity, and it may well be, but I think it's one worth pursuing nonetheless. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it will see something. In other words, as we say it in the Mayan, they always say, I mean, even if you lose at what you're doing, make sure you lose magnificently so that the beauty of your falling uh, feeds what gives us life. And so I'm right now trying my very best in a non-missionary way, uh, hopefully, and not in in a quick way, but a very, very slow, gradual village type way to slowly uh, inculcate in the people who are interested uh, a way of re-finding that memory so that it doesn't kill them when they finally open that box and doesn't stun them into inaction and re-somehow uh, juvenate the indigenous seed. So I was, um, 
years ago, uh, when I left Guatemala the first time, mm-hmm. with all of the trouble and all that, um, before I had left, my old teacher he passed away, and uh, he had uh, told me one of the things he said to me. He says, you know, the main thing for you, he, he was always dying. Uh. This guy was always dying and coming back to life. So no one ever believed. He always come up like every couple of weeks, say, oh, tomorrow I'm gonna die. You know? Wow. And oh yeah, sure. You know, and then he would he would pass out and he would have no pulse and then he would come back alive off and on. Uh-huh. And everybody was just kind of accustomed. And there were other guys that did this too and women. And so the one day when he finally did die before day before he died, he came. He says to me, he says, Look, tomorrow I'm going to die mid morning dancing my bundles. And I said, Okay. Mm. So no one can plant seeds. 
So of course the soldier starts ransacking everybody's granaries and pretty soon nobody's got anything and then finally somebody will resist and they kill them and then the people rise and back and forth and here we go. And just terrible thing was happening. And so the thing was that there was a guy who was a good friend of mine who was mm-hmm. blind, but he was in the crowd that was asking uh, to re- uh, uh, that the body of a man who had been killed resisting the having his uh, secret cache of food stolen by the soldiers that had killed him and quartered him up, and the people wanted it back. Mm-hmm. And so they had marched on the, on the little soldier bivouac, about 4,000 people or so, and, and with little kids and everything, and the soldiers opened fire on them in the night, and they killed quite a few of us. Uh-huh. And this one guy mysteriously got in a canoe, and he's, he's not totally blind in one eye, but in the other he was, and he rolled all the way across the lake. I don't know if you've ever tried doing that. It's like 13 miles, man. And he got to the village of Panachel, and he went in there, and he found this crazy American journalist, and she publicized what had happened. Because they're killing Indians all the time, and never makes the news, you know. Yes. And this particular event actually changed the course of things in Guatemala, because everybody had to denounce it as a travesty, because of the political parties were having a runoff, and they wanted the American money, you know, that had been taken away from them because of the human rights uh, um, encroachments. And so... Mm-hmm. Uh, there's this whole political nonsense. And so they actually removed the soldiers from the village and for the first time in a long time. And so Atitlan was all happy about this. But the soldiers, uh, they executed the wrong ones. Of course, some guys weren't even involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they were Indians. And so when they were taking the soldiers out, the officers ordered all the crops burnt. So they burnt every stick of everything that was left to eat to the ground. Mm-hmm. So by the time I came to visit, and a couple of days after that, and because uh, that was that, you know. And I went down, and they had a custom in the old days of naming little babies. And when the baby is named, it's 260 days after they're born, which mm-hmm. comes because when a child is born, mm-hmm. crack the, they don't crack it, but they, they pull the umbilicus, don't cut, you know. You, you just, you just uh, tease it apart uh-huh. uh, where it wants to break, like an orange stem. And the blood and all the different little meconiums that goes on this little ear of corn. And this corn then is distributed among all of the members of the families who give it to the old man. And then they grow it in the fields. And it takes 260 days for it to come back in. In other words, for 260 days, the child who's been born is growing in what is called the placenta of the village. But then when it finally comes uh, to the age to be speaking, in other words, when it first starts to get teeth, then this corn is brought back, you see, and they make this very special drink. It's in one of my book, a little bit of that. Yes. And yes. then this um, uh, person who's who's being uh, the one to give the child a name, they're going to name the child after that person who the. Uh, in other words, like uh, people would say, um, let's name the the child after you, and then you would show up and you would give your name to the child, and then they would make you drink three big old gourdfuls of this drink made from this corn. And that drinks it back in your belly. When this person gets old and they die, they do the same thing with the same corn. So the seed never leaves. Mm. It's being regrown by the birth, regrown by the death. This mm-hmm. is what I'm writing about now. Yes. So what happened to me is when I went to the village again after being absent for a couple of years, all the little kids had been named after me. <laughs> but I hadn't been there to bestow the name. Mm-hmm. So they were all waiting. So there were kids, you know, six years old, were supposed to be named when they were a year old. Uh-huh. And they were getting old, you know. Yes, <laughs> so yes. they lined up, but there was no corn left. The, the Indian corn was gone. Yeah. They were using this really terrible uh, 
GMO, on a GMO, but hybridized terrible American stuff, which was given to them, and that's when Monsanto came in and, and wrecked the whole country, see, mm. this whole issue. So I went in there and saw the terrible things, and I was doing my stuff, and I was going to stay, but the killers started to haunt me again after two weeks after leave. Mm. In the interim, a young man, well, he wasn't young, but he was a little guy, and I was taught him he was young, he still do, he's still alive. Mm. He came in with some of this corn, and the village went berserk. They couldn't figure out where he got it, because it's a special kind, the most ancient kind. So when he brought that in there, I um, I just saw that, and I said, my God, where did you get that? He says, well, you know, I'm the poorest guy in the town. He said, yeah, we know that. And he said, and he was. I mean, he, was, you know, he had patches on patches, this guy. And so he had grown the corn in this ravine by hanging himself over a on a rope <laughs> and planting the corn in the cliff and when they burnt the fields the fire couldn't reach it it went up this like funnel but it just seems the bottom of the corn and didn't kill it wow. so he replanted it and he was the only guy that was able to keep that seed alive so then it hit me in the head and said i remember my teacher said years back when he died he said your job is to keep the seeds alive you know mm-hmm. here's this guy keeping the actual seeds alive of the naming of the baby Wow. So I thought, when I have to leave this time, which I've never been able to go back, you know, all the troubles and everything, I, I'm going to smuggle some of this corn into the United States. So mm-hmm. he gave me a ear of it, but, you know, the, they will take it away from you. And so I put it between my toes, I put it in my butt, <laughs> I put it places you're not supposed to put things. Mm-hmm. And I, I got through those little funny little dogs in Houston. It's the only time I used the shamanic power, because mm-hmm. I did a thing with the dog. But they could see the value of the, of the seeds, and they just went dull. They didn't even bother. They just went over and bought some English lady for a ham sandwich, and <laughs> the, the immigration let me in. So I kept those little seeds in a sack for years and years, and that was my only connection with the village, because everything went kaput. Mm-hmm. All of the rituals went kaput, the corn farming went kaput, everything went down the hill. So I'm holding my little bag of seeds. I mean, I don't think there was more than two, three hundred seeds in there. It's a little mm-hmm. tiny corn ears. So um, one time I get invited to teach at a conference, and I know that I was this little shaman guy, I didn't teach or anything. And so I went to this conference, and uh, very trepidatiously, I, didn't, I was scared to death. It was one of these Robert Bly things. Yeah. For the men's conference, I thought, oh no, it was going to be horrible. But I needed the cash to see my children. So yeah. I went anyway, because my wife had stayed in Guatemala at the time. And, and when I got to the place, I actually liked what these guys were doing, the sincerity of it. Mm-hmm. But really sincere. Mm. What they were doing exactly, I didn't really, you know, it was like, oh, this is a little amateurish when you get to rituals. But, you know, their heart was in the right place and they were trying to do something, you know. Sure. So I got so excited uh-huh. that I had seen this for the first time in so many years that people came together wanting something different. Mm-hmm. I gave everybody a little of the coin they had none left for myself. Mm-hmm. And that was the last corn on earth of that because it ceased to exist in Atitlan. Wow. And so I was sitting, I remember, by a little river outside Mendocino where this thing took place up in the river here. Mm-hmm. And I was just sitting there and started to cry because all these men just left. Mm-hmm. Didn't even know what the corn was. I, just, I explained it to them. But, you know, some ate it and some threw it away and some kept, I guess. Yeah. And then I realized I, I'd blown on my seeds. Yeah. And so I was kind of how I felt spiritually as well. But what was, is I got very popular and I started teaching all over the United States as a result of this particular event, which is not because of the corn, just because of what I was teaching. And one day, about two years later, this strange old man came in with a big old sack of corn. And he said, here's your corn. I said, what do you mean? 
Well, you remember when you gave corn away at that conference? They said, yeah, you weren't there, though. They threw you out. <laughs> he said, I know. I waited down the road when everybody was leaving. And mm-hmm. I asked them if they were going to keep their corn. I took all their corn away. And I took it to San Diego, and I planted it. Mm-hmm. But it crossed on something else, so it looked kind of funny, you know what I'm saying? It yeah. didn't look like the one I had given them. Yeah. So, in a long, to make this long story short, what happened was, I gave it all out again at the conference I was at, because he came to another conference. And I gave all the corn away, then everybody would grow it, and they would bring it back. And then when they would bring it back, I would give it away again, and they would regrow it. Wow. For four years. Uh-huh. And, and the fourth, and a lot of funny stories there, which I won't, I won't bother your tape with now. So that's why I'm writing, so you yeah, can read no. it someday. But the yeah. thing is, one day I had a lineup of about 200 people, and some of them were, you know, Croatian, some of them were from Africa, some of them were Afghan descendants, some were from India. And some were Americans with every kind of blood, and some native people, this kind and that kind. And mm-hmm. they were all lined up, and I looked at the corn I had in my hand, and some of them were blue, and some were yellow, and some were wrinkled, some were smooth, mm-hmm. tall, some were little, some mm-hmm. were shy, some were very exuberant. And I said, that's what Chivalu meant. He said, your job is not to be prejudiced against what the seeds look like when they come in. Oh. You're going to have to hide and all mutate according to the condition they find themselves in. That goes, he says, for the knowledge, and that goes also for the seeds themselves. Your job is only to keep the seeds planted and keep them alive and not judge what they look like when they show up in their new form. And it just hit me like a big old storm. He was actually had been trying to tell me, and so I gave the seeds away weeping to all the people because I realized that these people have forgotten their ancestry. They've forgotten their indigenous root. Yeah. But deep inside their bone, it was still jumping and living. And they still had that love of that beauty of that. And so they were going to look like all different ways and be all, some are depressed and some are happy and some are up, some are down, some men, women, children. All mm-hmm. different. Some have a leg, some missing this, some are mm-hmm. dying. Everything was just exactly like the corn I was holding that did have the genes of the original corn I brought from the village. But also the genes of everybody else's corn that they had jamming with them, you know, and they kind of crossed on them. And so I gave it away. And so this went on and on for years, and I really got into it. And then finally I started school on the basis of that. So you ask me, what am I trucking these days? Well, you know, that's what I'm hauling around, man. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful story. Let me tell you, it's bigger than that. But I'm writing a whole book on it, of course, called Keeping the Seeds Alive. I almost got it, so I was involved with it. Oh, it's it's so beautiful because it's so full of tenderness. And I feel that tenderness is the most important feeling um, to propagate at this time, you know. Yeah, when just the bravery and all of the bullets flying around and the very strange, scared politics and economies and all that, if you really look at it, you know, it's kind of an obligation to keep the seas alive. In other words, you keep the seeds alive, but you also keep the seeds of beauty alive. Yeah, yeah. They don't die because that, 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 that takes some doing. And so it's not just a lot of theatrics. It's a real sincere thing. So that's why I start my little funny school. I just I keep hammering away at that. You know? oh, well, one could say that uh, that seeds are the tenderness of the earth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Martin, you know, um, I think that uh, it's difficult, although Europeans have a different way of looking at the narrative of the 
at the story, it's difficult for us Europeans to get in touch with our indigenous roots, yeah. our indigenous roots before the, uh, the conquest and before uh, the Jesus story. Uh, before the Romans. Yeah. yeah, before the Romans. So could you speak of it to me and to the people who are listening all over the world? about indigenous European roots. Well, that's the, that's the basis of my school. That's why it's called Bullet's Kitchen. That's, it's a kind of a riddle. European uh, root is a very interesting thing. Um, one thing that has to be remembered is that none of the people who are in Europe, except for a very scant amount, and here and there scattered through the genes, mm-hmm. actually from Europe, from the geographic area of Europe. Uh-huh. only speak of Eurasia. And the present boundary lines of East and West and North and South, those are all fake nonsenses put in in the last couple thousand years. Right. And the real, actual, animate, um, cultural and, uh, you forgive the term, uh, uh, ethnic and genetic uh, mm-hmm. backgrounds of the people are way deeper and richer than anyone likes to think about. Right. You don't really have to look too far if you really want to look at it. So what I have noticed, um, mm-hmm. my, my thing is I'm a half Indian, and I was raised as an Indian. Matter of fact, I didn't know I wasn't an Indian until I was 16, and some white guy told me I wasn't allowed in a certain market because I didn't have enough blood. So I, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I can relate to that. <laughs> there you go. And then the rest of the time, I never told anybody it was half Indian because I'm, I'm pretty blonde because I've got blonde jeans on both sides, so the recessives hit. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was... Uh, I could never figure out since I was a little boy why the heck the first thing the people who came to this country from other countries they're not all Europeans but mostly Europeans and they weren't side Europeans they were a certain genre of European of course Mm -hmm. political genre why their first thing to do was to subjugate and do the same thing mess all over again that happened to Europe itself yes and so when I was little I would be pursuing this pursuing this and of course uh, when I came back from Guatemala it became enormously apparent that what had happened to the people who came here had had it done to them south as well. Yes. So in other words, they had been overrun exactly like they overrun the native people here. Yeah. The land and the indigenous life forms. I mean, people tend to forget that tigers used to roam in Europe and that uh, before AD 50, there was still a huge migrating herd of bison. Right. Poland still has a couple left over. Uh-huh. And so the Caucasus. And wild cattle. I mean, it was a whole other, and there were lions, you know, big old shaggy lion going all mm-hmm. the way from with Spain, all the way into uh, uh, Pakistan. Yes. Now Pakistan. And so uh, when I started looking, I started saying, oh, so in other words, the ones that are abused become amnesiacs to their past and become the abusers. Exactly. But they're always displaced people. So this displacement, whether it's a social displacement or spiritual displacement or actual land displacement, I started looking into it and I started realizing, you know, Spain, which was never a country till 1492, and there's parts of Spain that still were arguing about it, um, that they, that started uh, because of the Romans giving exactly 40-acre parcels to all of the guys that fought in the Punic Wars in order to establish uh, Latin as the national language in Italy that had over 360 indigenous languages, so that they would banish those things. And that all these people have gone through the same exact thing. So here we go, here's Spain, what is the Iberian Peninsula, mm-hmm. it's been, which has got all kinds of indigenous 
so they take over the whole area, and then, you know, you've got, uh, a thousand, what is it, 1,400, uh, let's see, was it 1,300 years later, mm-hmm. the same exact thing going on in the Americas, and then you've got, and when the United States is established by European powers, then uh, you get less than 100 years later, they're now apportioning the western part past the Mississippi in exactly the same amount of portions, 40-acre lots to all the soldiers they couldn't pay in the Civil War. Right. And all of this sort of displacement, and uh, in every case the people are immigrants, and in every case they've been, nip- been manipulated in their own homelands. Mm-hmm. So that this thing of being an abused person, becoming the abuser, means that the amnesia of the rape right. forces the next group to become somebody who plunders because the only way to feel freedom is to constantly trying to feel feel that hollowness of forgetting yeah. of where you are and who you really are. So what I said was, yes. and I don't, this is my, I'm, my bet, all right? My mm-hmm. bet is that in the bone somewhere there is an indigenous memory of what we can be, not of how we were. This is what everybody gets mixed up with. I'm not talking about ancestors. Uh-huh. Whereas we got to go become Celt or we got to go become Wudam or, right. or you know, uh, Jarima or this kind of that. Uh-huh. But uh, what made those people possible in the time is the, their relationship with the land itself. They were not uh, great because they were our ancestors. They were great because of the way they lived. So that capacity, I call the spiritual DNA, so to speak, of the indigenous soul. And that inside the bone, mm-hmm. the marrow of memory, is what the Mongols call it, by the way, they still call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, that capacity to remember cannot come out during this state of long siege of amnesia that we have been in for the last uh, couple thousand years. Yes. can only exist by uh, continual expansionism in order to mine where we ain't to fill the vacancy of where we where we are. Yes. So in order to be in a place well and stay put, you actually have to have some memory of your origins. And how are you going to find that if you don't have the memory capacity? So what I decided to do was start teaching from a, a root point of view instead of uh, teaching history like, oh, this happened then and this happened then and this happened then. Not at all. But to teach it from a point of view that went simultaneously advanced from present and past so that the beginnings of things happen in the middle and radiate out from there just like the universe. Wow. So it turned out that most Indo-European, if you want to still use that kind of washed out term (laughs) still around, actually does not have its quote-unquote linguistic origins in Europe but have it in sub-Siberia um, on, the, on the Nico cultures in the Ordus Desert of what is now Inner Mongolia mm-hmm. and in the Altai, and that all the migrations of people coming in were actually a very, very small group. And so I postulated, because of the spiritual upbringing that I had, that what had happened to them is what happened to the Mayans recently was that they were the most marvelous, incredible people, mm-hmm. but that at some point, there was a thought that shouldn't have been or couldn't have been thought, and they started to flee it coming west. Uh-huh. What was this unthinkable thought? Yes. Well, it can't be voiced in words, but that's what happened in Atitlang, you see. There is no verb to be in any, most, hardly any language in the world except uh, Romance languages uh-huh. and Indo-European languages. Uh-huh. So to exist or not exist is actually an, an un- impossible thought in native terms. So when you have the to be or not to be question of Shakespeare there, you know, uh-huh. that is, you can't say that in Mayan. You can't even explain that with an empty play. 
So I'm thinking that as soon as that concept, that idea comes into an Indo-European spirituality, it will work out all right as long as they have a tripartite and a spiral migration method where they're constantly moving in a migratory pattern like swans or like uh, caribou or like uh, the buffaloes. Yeah. But as soon as that migration route is disrupted and they're asked either to settle or they have to continually head in one direction because they're fleeing something imperial that's trying to settle them, then they become a scared being that constantly overrunning the next group. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered, mm-hmm. but to my great surprise, through the great scholar James Russell, that, and others, there's a really great Persian lady too, right now I can't remember her whole name, so I don't want to butcher it, but it's fabulous. And she just got translated into English that most of the slaves that were being used by um, all of the people of what is now known as uh, Middle East, the Elamitics, and all those people a long time ago, not the Semites, that they were all uh, Indo-European groups of nomadic people living in the mountains on the other side of the Fergana, and that's where they used to do all their slavery. So I realized that what we're dealing with here in the case of America and Europe, right. people who have a distant reaction to and memory of being slave and serf and then are constantly trying to be the overlord now to compensate for it. Yeah, like... But this whole thing of being served and slave, no one wants to look at it. They always think of black slave, you know, they always think of Native American slave, or this, but this whole idea of having been a slave and uh, ancestrally, and uh, where you uh, typically enslave the group of people who are peaceful and happy in a group, which is the old way of doing it. Mm-hmm. Just moved in on a group that was farming and took over their wheat. Yes. And they were ended up being a serf. Then that this memory of this made these people really, really rise and uh, and lose their original Aboriginal uh, way because they were traumatized. Right. So this trauma became this Western migration. So the Europeans that we know as Europe now, like in Poland, for instance, mm-hmm. France, and uh, uh, Germany, uh, Italy, uh, everywhere, these people were coming in over and over again. They would be assimilated into these imperial places, mm-hmm. and then the next group coming in, they would recognize them as their own blood relatives, so they would be characterized as barbarian, because the shame of them having been barbarian ancestrally, all of a sudden they're going to say, oh no, we're not that. Wow, yeah. You see, so that hatred of the natural, the native, and the ethnic uh, comes from not a superiority, but a feeling of inferiority. That's right, self-hatred. The self-hatred. So I say, okay, what do we do? Yes, no, please. We're going to sit around and say, that's the case, so a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. that's not going to cure anything. We have to work with this. Yes. So you can't just go out and say, okay, I'm not a German. Okay, then you start realizing, oh, well, what does the word German mean? Mm-hmm. It's not a German word. It comes from somebody else. What is everybody else used to call the Germans? They call them the Alman, mm-hmm. the Aleman, which means all people. Mm-hmm. They call them all people because there weren't any Germans among them. Most of them are Persians, Aryans, Alans, Osets, all kinds of things. And so you're going, oh my God. So what you have is these conglomerations and confederations of people that are unnatural to themselves, but being formed in order to protect themselves from something else or in order to flee this or to get, you know, land for that. And so I have everybody in my school search out their ancestry, but they have to push way past what they were told by their parents. Mm. You know, like every guy that from England I have there, so I'm telling you, there's going to be so few of you who are ancestrally full of England. And I'm also going to take the credit for saying that first person to ever say that the people that were at Stonehenge were from Switzerland and uh-huh. Slavic countries. Yes. Because I know that's true, and they just found it with the radioisotopes in the teeth. That's what was 
Uh-huh. Okay. So I, but I said it four years ago, so take that in Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm just saying the magnificent thing of this of it is that I... Are you on? Yeah, we're on. Okay. Well, what happened is I started thinking about these migrations, and I started thinking way back previous migration, before all of the imperial forces mm -hmm. stuck, uh, began, before the Carthaginians, before the Phoenicians, you know, before the Semitic empires. Yes. And I said, well, then what was going on in Europe then? You know, everyone was always trying to uh, characterize Europeans as these, you know, all these loutish kind of people, you know, and staying up and fire and growing a little primitive spelt or something, <laughs> dragging themselves around in some basswood shoes or something. But it's not true. They're very sophisticated uh, waves of people coming in, but they always leave. Uh -huh. I started to think, you know what? I wonder if Europe wasn't a place to visit because I also realized that the Altai mm -hmm. and the Urdus, yes. Yenshen, and all those other areas up by the Yenisei and the Ob and the Obst and all those areas up there, they were places where people did live, but most of the people came at certain times and sometimes in four-year areas. So I realized that in the Altai, one of the things that was happening with many of the ancient nomadic peoples, Turkic, Mongol, Altaic, and Indo-European simultaneously, mm -hmm. many blondes up there, by the way, uh, is that uh, when they would bury their exalted dead, when they would come back four years later, they would build a circle around it a uh, hundred yards or so away and release all the animals that they wanted so the animals could never be killed inside that circle. And they did it every four years, every four years. And after a while, the whole area was off limit to humans because no one was allowed to eat those animals. No one was allowed to milk them or domesticate them. They were returned to the dead. And that pretty soon all those mountains became basically natural parks. Uh -huh. And yes. that's why the people could visit, but they weren't allowed to stay. But that would be their ancestral origin homeland, you see. And so then they would migrate, uh, you know, annually, just uh, go around in their cycles, not going and never coming back, but just keep going not only in small cycles, but very large cycles of return. And I started thinking about Europe in that way. I thought that, well, maybe Europe was the same way, but the only thing is they were going east and going and coming back to the west. And this turns out that there is some documentation for this. So then I start thinking of all these places that are so sacred to everyone that, you know, now they've got churches on top of half of them. And there's, you know, you know about that, I'm sure. sure. Everywhere yeah. you go in Europe, everywhere, everywhere. And I mean, when I say Europe, I'm including, uh, you know, all of the Slavic countries. And exactly. all the Balkans and everything. Which <laughs> is the real Europe, you know. Yeah. Everywhere, even into the British Isles. You're finding these, these sites, and I'm thinking that that was the place that everyone would go to pilgrimage, mm -hmm. to go do all of these rituals, plant certain kinds of crops, and bury certain amount of their dead, and then leave and go back to a more central Eurasian area where they actually live the everyday life going back and forth, some planting and some being a pastoralist. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why they developed the wheel, you see, and uh, took mm -hmm. it to China, because those are the people going back and forth. So I'm always thinking that the indigenous, uh, that the people in Europe, when they're going to think of themselves indigenously, they can think of the recent times where you have all of these different mountain villages and all that. But like the Celts, for instance, very recent uh, newcomers to, to Europe, they're always thinking they're indigenous there. They're not indigenous to Britain. They're not indigenous to France. They're not indigenous to Spain. If you look on the old words, you go or travel around the world. I know you know how to speak a lot of language, I can tell. So, yeah. like, for instance, if you go to what's now known as Turkey, which is not originally Turkey, or the Caucasus, or you go into the area of Azerbaijan, or okay. into the area of 
mm-hmm. run into a place that's called Galatia. Yep. You're going to run into a place called Galicia. Galicia. And you're going to say, why is that? Because what does Galicia mean? The, well, northern Spain is called Galicia. That exactly. means land of the Gauls. Yeah. Which is the land of the Celts. And the word Gaul is the original word that has two sides of it. In the Latin form, it means salt. And in the, in the uh, other side, in the European, it means milk. These are the people who are drinking milk, making cheese, milking mm. sheep and goat, and, and wandering. So these people would continually be thrown out of their area, but originally I think they were all migrating. The Celts of Iberian, the Celts of Germans, and migrating back and forth and visiting the sacred places back and forth because they find the earliest remains of Celts in, of course, the Taklaman Desert, which now was Chinese, to be called Chinese Turkestan. Mm-hmm. And then the rest, uh, they're finding them, you know, in Hofstadt down in Austria in the salt mines where they were slaved by the Romans for getting salt, but that yeah, was yeah. later, mind you. But so, I think back and forth, back and forth, so that Europe was not a place to live, the East was not a place to live, the Middle was a place to live. And mm-hmm. then now, until recently, it was actually kind of like where a great big meteorite hit and exploded and turned into this no-man's land in everybody's mind. Mm-hmm. Ask an American where Turkmenistan is, nobody could tell you. Mm-hmm. You ask them, you know, where Kazakhstan is, they don't know where that is. Exactly. But it's there. And it's, it used to be really populated with Indo-Europeans, man. And like all the people from India, they come from there originally, and they know that. Not mm-hmm. all the people, but the Skithosakas who came down, who, who formed Buddhism and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, I'm talking too much, too many things, too fast, big, huge ideas. And I don't really want anybody to steal them from me yet, because I'm writing about them. And once they get out, then I sure, care. Sure. But, and I'm teaching it. But well, as far as Europeans, to make it simple... Europe is made of, uh, from the last 2,000 years, of this huge tier of grief and of displacement and of trouble and yes. up and down and in and out. And the people themselves, mm-hmm. there's so many kind ancestrally. Mm-hmm. But if they will pursue and not get too caught up in what, you know, Grandma so-and-so said about where we're from, mm-hmm. they'll pursue it and go see it. You're going to realize mm-hmm. yeah, sooner or later there's an enormous story, and that story has to be there so that grief does not kill the present generation and turn them violent. Mm. Because that grief of the ancestral grief, if it does not have a daily home, Mm. then it becomes something that either creates depression because it will eat the person in a suicidal way, or it is exported on the rest of the world in a collective way, i.e. George Bush, etc., and so on. And so what is necessary to do is not to keep it inside. What is not necessary to do is to forget and expone it and uh, express it as an exponent of the country. What is necessary is to metabolize it to make beauty. But you can't do it unless you know the reality. Mm -hmm. But I'm just going to give a small example here. I have a guy who I've known for quite a while, and he's from Britain. He's a really nice fellow, uh, but he's going to come from regular shoemaking people up there in Umberland. Mm-hmm. And so he comes to my school, and I had him pursue. I said, I'm positive you're not, your people are not from Umberland. And there's nobody from Umberland. They originally were all uh, visitors. And he looked into it, and on one side, yeah, that's true. He says they were Danes that mm-hmm. came in. Okay, so well, look what part of Dane, of, mm-hmm. of Denmark. And, of course, it was Jerusalem. And I said, well, the people in Jerusalem, most of them went to Tunisia. I mm-hmm. said, that's the people that took over Tunisia, and they were called the Jews. And he said, really? I said, yeah. And they also were originally from Jerusalem. They came from farther inland, and a lot of them were Khazaric Jews. Mm-hmm. Check that out. Oh, he checked the other side. It turned out there were Germans who were brought there as slaves by Romans to build, build Hadrian's Wall. Mm-hmm. And they were left there like coolies by the British, you know, as they do in India, and didn't give them passage home. Mm-hmm. But they ended up staying there. So 
never knew. I said, of course not. And now you're always talking bad about the Germans, so now you got to go look in Germany. Then you go look in Germany, you're going to realize that little place in Regensburg, they're not from there, they're from farther east, or farther north, or farther south, or somewhere, and all. Once you start looking, you start realizing that your ancestry, no matter how much gobbledygook you think it has, it's actually got a magnificent story, as painful as it may be. And that connection has to be there until you get as far as you can get, and then you start have to... Uh, to to start getting gifts to it and get a connection, then you gotta look toward your indigenous soul. The main thing for European, at least as far as my, you know, I'm preaching here, but you know, no, no, <laughs> I start getting very vehement. But because I love the people and I don't <sighs> want them to get so lost, and I just say you gotta really look at the reality of what indigenous means. Indigenous doesn't mean your ancestors. But what is your ancestor has to be somewhat established as a story so that you can understand how to become indigenous because indigenous doesn't exist in the past. Mm-hmm. It only exists in the present. And so uh, what was indigenous has to now manifest as indigenous. So you cannot mm-hmm. get your indigenosity from being a Sioux. Uh-huh. This is the big problem the Native Americans, me included. I cannot go around, you know, with a big chip on my shoulder because my ancestor, you know, fought some British guy, mm-hmm. which, yeah. you know, I did for a while. Exactly, <laughs> no, but, exactly. <laughs> yeah, you're allowed to do it before you're 18, it's okay. You <laughs> gotta get out of your system, but after that, you know. <laughs> but you can't have the government employing that as a soldier. You mm-hmm. gotta go through the initiation and get over it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta find that the indigenous is how you live now with a legitimate root that's not necessarily ancestral. Mm. So we have a facetious saying in Mayan, it's saying, You've got to find the last happy ancestor, which could be a long way back, and latch on to that story. What a clue. What a fantastic clue. And that's a long journey, but it's worth doing. Wow. Never ending, I mean, you know. But then every day, see, then you have a worth in the universe to feed the holy. So whatever you find, you're not going to rest on that. You can't rest on that. What you have to say is, okay, now I'm going to take this and I'm going to make my song. And every morning I'm going to feed the sun with my song. Mm-hmm. I'm going to feed the plant. I'm going to feed the animal. I'm going to feed what's holy in the seed and what's holy in the ground. Mm-hmm. With what I have now as a worthy person instead of this person who's always running away from World War Two or World War One or right. the Crimean or the Napoleonic or every yeah, other yeah. thing. Or now. And um, get a, a place so that it's not just a place of death and a place of entombment, but a place of turning grief into beauty in order to feed the present indigenous nature of the soul and the indigenous nature of the ground. Yes. Because yes. the indigenosity cannot be killed. That's the other good thing. It can't be killed. It only runs away. We can be killed. We can do a lot of killing. And we can ruin everything around us. But we cannot kill what makes those indigenous things live. They're in the ground. They're in the bones. Mm-hmm. My teacher always used to bang on my head every day. Mm-hmm. They'll remember that. So now I bang on your son. <laughs> yes. Oh, well, I talk. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened either. But <laughs> uh, the spirit said, shut up, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Martin, so uh, find all the refugees in your own soul yeah. and bring them home. Yeah, it's a long trail, but turn it into something that can be useful instead of something that kills you, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That was so beautiful. Um, you changed me. Thank you. No 
Yes. Uh, oh, this spirits change. All I do is hammer away at leaks. I'm like a bad plumber in a land of leaks. You know, I just plug one thing <laughs> and then the next one starts leaking. <laughs> Martin, um, we're going to bring it around now. Okay, I'll try and to be more. No, it's wonderful, and I thank you. You're welcome. Just uh, want to ask you, um, how would you like to bring around this spiral? Well, um, well I would like actually to say that the main thing is to stay small. Um, not to be making mega movements, but making small things. Yes. To be planting small gardens that do really, really well. To be kind to people in small ways. And uh, to do, that's the most deliciously wonderful subversion we can do is uh, say hi to people. Do the love drive-bys we used to always talk about. In other words, uh, watch somebody who's uh, in trouble and, and show up somehow and give gifts. Everything. In other words, you have, and so it's a very different experience 
every little tea, every little water, you know what spring it came from, you know who brought it, mm-hmm. you know what it's about, you know the story behind everything. Therefore, everything around you is storied. Mm-hmm. And if it's not storied, if everything around you is as displaced as you are, it is also a refugee. Mm-hmm. Parts of your car and your cell phone, they're all refugees because nobody asked them if they wanted to turn into a little piece of titanium. Mm-hmm. Or, you see, so indigenously, if you want to find origins, not your ancestral origins, but your indigenous origins, then what you got to do is make a little 10 by 10 space in your house and promise not to put anything in there that you don't know where it came from, from the nth degree. And then go in there once a day and drink tea. And of course, you got to know where the tea is from and the Tamils that picked it, at least by name, mm-hmm. and, and the water and then the cups. And um, the little table, maybe from a piece of a ship that maybe somebody had. And, and then you go in there with your friend once in a while and you tell the story of everything that's in there and every part of the tea set and the water and the tea and you drink together the story in a sense. Mm. And I get old and pass into ashes and cinder and water and our children or our neighbor's children come in there. They will know the story of everything in there and they will keep adding uh, things to that little place. So after two or three generations, that will actually be a legitimate ancestral origin. Mm-hmm. People to not lose who they are. Mm-hmm. So if you have an origins place, then you're one of mine. And that's where we always go to have peace and to make beauty. Because we have nothing in there that we don't know where it came from. Maybe a little sparse for a while, but <laughs> you'll be amazed. Mm-hmm. amazed. Mm-hmm. So if people can do that, then that's a very tiny, small what you might call major peaceful revolution for their own soul mm. so that they can bring. And then that way their ancestors will have a little house where they can all be welcome mm. and they won't be thrown away. Mm. That will be their little, uh, what we, uh, they call it in Mayan, you know what they call it? They call it Warbal Khai. Mm-hmm. It's called Warbal Khai means um, a resting house, mm. a place where everyone can get some rest. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I always liked it. They put them in their It's all about tenderness with all living things. It's about origins. Origin. It's about being able to die with the beauty. Yeah. And you know what that, you remember that old Zen Buddhist story about mm-hmm. the samurai? Mm. And the, oh, there's about a hundred of them, right? Yeah. Zen monk. That's what it's about. It's about there's the samurais are coming in the village, going to kill everybody because they're from the neighboring warlords and they're going to take all the land and scum uh, with these serfs for their kingdom. And, there's an old monk up on the hill who's cooking, just begun cooking his rice. Mm-hmm. Rice is so precious for him because all the peasants have to work so hard to grow it mm-hmm. by hand that one of the guys sees in the village, are, they're, leave, oh, they're leaving like refugees from the village because they're an oncoming troop. And they see this monk smoke coming out of his hut. And so they run up there and say, oh, you better get going, honorable sir, because, you know, these uh, guys are going to come and they're going to kill you or enslave you or something. He says, yeah, but I just started cooking my rice. I don't want to waste it. He says, what heck with your rice? Let's get out of here. And he goes, oh, no, you guys work all year to grow this rice. And then how could I throw it over like that? Mm-hmm. It's ridiculous. Now, when I get it done, I'll grab it and I'll come. And so they went, oh, guys, guys, impossible, you know, damn Buddhist. So mm-hmm. they finally left. And the samurai show up and they do exactly what they say they were going to do. They burn all the houses and take all their food and they're gone. But they see the smoke coming from this little hut and they go up to 
right. He said, when you like something, he said, no, do you know I'm a slammer and I could cut your head off? He said, I know you could cut my head off for what? But do you know, I can die smiling and you can't. Oh. And so that's basically how I'm bringing it around today. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much, Martin <laughs> Fertel. Yeah. You're Thank very, you. very welcome. Thank you for your Do gift. shake hands? Yeah, I'd love to shake hands and hug. And yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, lots of blessings on you and your family. Well, I'm going to bless everybody that's listening. I'm going to make a little prayer there. Yes, mine. please. Uh, Please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.